Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, welcome to episode 200 of my podcast. It's May 30th, 2014. Um, I, I feel like there should be some sort of sound effect or ta-da sound or, I don't know, triumphant marching band music playing in the background or something for, for 200 episodes. I, I don't know how many of you listening have actually uh, listened to all 200. I mean, it's about 100 hours uh, worth of content. Um, this started back in 2006. It was a, a suggestion from my good friend Norm Bodek, and um, that he was episode one. He's been a guest a number of times since. And, you know, if you want to hear any of the old episodes – you can go to leanpodcast.org. Um, not all of the episodes are, are in the iTunes feed. Um, it's a rather lengthy podcast series we've had here. I'm, I'm curious how many of you, if any of you have listened, um, to all 200. I would certainly appreciate, um, any feedback or any notes, um, that you have about the podcast at, uh, mark at leanblog.org or you can post a comment or, or send an email through the website. But, um, today's episode, uh, my guest is is Paul Spiegelman. He's the author of a book, um, at least most recently, titled "Patience Comes Second: Leading Change by Changing the Way You Lead." And and today we're talking about his book. Uh, I, when I first got introduced to it, I thought you know, it's a provocative title. What do you mean? You know, patients don't come first. Um, but I think we have a really interesting discussion about why focusing on engaged employees, taking care of the employees, leads to better patient care and more success for the organization. Um, we're talking about leadership and engagement, um, connecting people's work and improvement to, to purpose and values. Um, I think a really good discussion with Paul. So you can find links to his website and, and the book and all sorts of other stuff if you go to leanblog.org slash 200. And I hope you'll come back for uh, future episodes. Thanks a lot. Ta-da. Paul, hi. Thanks for being a guest here on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in and talk about your book, and maybe you can also fill in some details about your professional background as you do that. Um, the, the title is Patients Come Second, which is maybe a bit provocative for people, this idea of, of second. So can you talk about choosing that title uh, and why you make that statement? What, what do you mean by the idea that the patient comes second? Well, you're right. The title is a little provocative, but we chose the title on purpose because in the last few years, there's been so much talk about the patient experience, about patient-centered care. The economics of healthcare are changing in a way that we're really focused to become a customer service industry, which is great. It's about time, and uh, the economics are driving that, and that's okay. But as we thought about the patient and uh, in my professional life in healthcare and my co-author in the book who has run large hospitals, uh, we became years ago very passionate about this topic of employee engagement. And, and I feel that, that no matter what industry we're in, whether we're healthcare or not, we have choices to make as business leaders and where we spend our time, what we focus on first, what we prioritize. Uh, you can say that financials drive our decisions. We can say that the customer drives our decisions. In our case, we believe it's the people that should drive the decisions and drive the strategy of the company. And so uh, we use that title to say that if we're really going to fix the patient, we've got to fix ourselves first. 
And uh, the fact is we're in an industry that's really not known for great service and not known for having great internal cultures. So the point of the book is to talk about how if we're really going to focus on creating great patient care, then we have to focus on taking care of each other internally and creating an environment in which our people love what we do every day. And by way of background, my my career has really been spent in the healthcare industry running an outsourced call center company. So if you think of call centers, you think of the, the low morale, low margin, um, high attrition businesses. And uh, we decided that we weren't going to have a business like that, that we were going to be a premium provider and we weren't going to compete on cost. And when I started the business in Los Angeles in 1985 um, with my brothers, we set ourselves out to do something different and to uh, differentiate ourselves by not talking about what we do so much as who we are um, and creating a vision of uh, engagement where that would lead to ultimately um, su- success in the business. So um, running that business and serving you know hundreds of hospitals over the course of you know 29 almost 30 years and then working with Britt Barrett the, the uh, president of Texas Health Presbyterian um, and working together for many years, we thought that the, that we could use the book and the title of the book really to, to kind of shake up the industry a little bit to say, look, um, we've got tremendous financial pressures. That's not going to change. As a matter of fact, it's probably only going to get worse in the coming years. So what are we going to focus on? What are we going to do about it? And we kind of go back to the basics and said, focus on your people and create that great environment and they'll do the rest. Within hospitals and healthcare settings, how do you and Britt make specific connections? Um, can, can you think of examples of engagement directly leading to a better patient experience and better patient care? Well, I think there's plenty of data that's already out there that connects uh, things like employee engagement to uh, to patient satisfaction and patient satisfaction to better productivity or better financial results with organizations. And so uh, we can certainly quote data there that supports that. The, the fact is, as leaders, we really don't know how to lead differently than we've been taught. And in healthcare, we have this really unique paradigm where you've got doctors that have been trained in a silo to do what they do and nurses to do what they do and administrators to do what they do, but nobody ever was taught how to play in a sandbox together. And so as a result, we we end up uh, creating positive clinical results generally for our patients, but not a great overall experience. And so uh, because of that dynamic, we concentrate on um, how we can make this connection with people and bring people back to the basics of um, a vision that people connect to, a purpose beyond just their job, a set of core values that they can live by, uh, doing small things to make people feel good about themselves in their day-to-day work and make them feel that they're being developed. And then making sure that you track and measure all of the things that you're doing so that you can validate that connection and look at the, quote, ROI of engagement. But, but uh, the, the data is increasing and is really uh, hard to refute about this connection that, that happy people make happy customers, and we're no different in healthcare.
I think it's really interesting, Paul, that you, um, that you, like you said, you chose a different strategy for a call center business. And why do you think it's such a rare strategy, maybe in, in that industry or in healthcare? Why it's such a rare strategy to focus on employee engagement, to move beyond maybe just paying lip service to it and really, really diving in and doing what it takes to engage people? Why, why is that so rare? Well, I think uh, a couple of reasons. One is that if we look to the way business was built, uh, generally in any industry, business was built on this notion that if we can be as lean as possible and, and focus on just driving high financial results, top line and bottom line, that is going to drive success. And uh, what we're finding is that, that that is not true, that the most successful companies, uh, many companies that you think about that ha- are known for uh, employee engagement and culture, companies like Southwest Airlines, Whole Foods, Container Store, Harley-Davidson, these companies generate financial returns far and above greater than their competitors uh, for those reasons. Um, in in our industries, for example, call centers, you used to you think of the you know hiring low paid workers, um, just throwing them on the phone with two hours of training and and doing that job, um, not realizing that if you flipped it. And, and didn't re- look at just how to save money, but how to actually engage people in the front line and the work that they do to have pride and enjoy what they do every day, you're going to actually drive better results in, in your business. So selfishly, creating an engaged workforce is not just the right thing to do. It's good for business. And in healthcare, it's the same thing. You know, It used to be, in, particularly with hospitals, if we build it, they will come. And it, and uh, and so if my doctor said this is where I'm going to admit you, we would just go and and uh, we'd go to wherever the doctor told us. It was kind of this blind faith. Well, you know the world has changed, and now we have choice. Not only do we have choice, but the nature of the economics of healthcare are such that we most often now have much more out of pocket that we have to spend. So I'm going to think twice about where I get my care, is it going to be the right care, and what questions am I going to ask to make sure I'm making the right decision. And my experience is not so much did I get a good clinical result, but what was the overall experience. And if I can go somewhere where I feel that they treated me with respect, that they responded well, that they felt engaged in what they were doing, uh, I'd much rather go there, right? So I think what we're seeing is that the consumer is starting to ask different questions. They're already asking about clinical results. They're asking about levels of patient satisfaction. But what they're soon going to be asking is, well, are the employees happy at that hospital? Because if they're happy, then chances are I'm going to be treated well. So we have to prepare for that. And for many, it's just a a different and new way of leadership. Well, along those lines of a different way of leadership um, and, and, and what you share in the book, a lot of the strategies and ideas about how to create engagement, um, what are some of the introductory basic tips or advice that you'd give leaders who say they want to create a higher level of engagement? How, how do they actually make that happen? Well, you know, it's it's a great question because it depends where we are in the evolution of our organization. So it's clearly difficult to just stop midstream and change a culture. That's generally going to require new leaders or a new leader to come in. In my case, I kind of 
I didn't know any different or any better when I started my business. I had no experience. But, you know, how do you change midstream? And first, it starts with that leader. Uh, and I believe if we don't have a, a leader of the organization that truly, genuinely believes in these concepts, it's not going to survive. It's not going to work. So once you have that, the leader is asking those same questions. How do I do it? I think the first thing is to establish a set of core values that that are not a plaque on the wall for that organization, but that allow that uh, employee at any level of the organization to know that there's a purpose beyond the job, that they understand the vision of the organization, they understand their connection to uh, achieving that vision for the organization, and they understand and can recite those core values that are the way that we make decisions every day. So I can live by those guidelines and understand if I put my head down, work hard, live by those core values, everything's going to work well. And what we find is that, that while every healthcare organization has a vision or a mission, it's not necessarily lived every day. It's not talked about. So do we start every meeting by talking about the vision? Do we tell stories about how people have lived up to the core values? Have we tied our reward and recognition program to that vision? All of those things need to be done to make people really feel connected. So I'd say the first step for a leader is to make sure that that's in place. And if not, to be really vulnerable with his or her staff to say, look, uh, we want to do things differently. We want to make a change. And then it doesn't come from the top. It has to be inclusive. You have to include your team in developing that vision so that they feel really a part of it going forward. Well, I think you know, even that just that simple and powerful point about being vulnerable, I think that's fairly rare. It's a rare characteristic and a tough thing for leaders who've been taught or conditioned to to be in charge, you know, to, to be large and in charge. And usually that makes it hard for someone to show vulnerability. You know, Toyota talks a lot about leading with humility. And I, I had someone from healthcare ask the other day, basically, uh, you know, doesn't making, uh, doesn't make you look weak as a leader to be humble. And I said, well, you know, no, I, I think that shows strength actually. And, you know, would you say it's paradoxical to be able to show vulnerability and that being, um, actually a sign of strength in a leader. Yeah, I think it's an absolute sign of strength, and, and it does take strength to be vulnerable and it takes courage. So as leaders, if we're not used to that, we have to um, let our defenses down a little bit and realize that if you, we're all people, we all have flaws, we all make mistakes, and if you're just honest with people and realize that the best ideas are going to come from them, right? As a leader, yes, I want to help set the vision, articulate, evangelize. But if I'm doing my job right, my time is spent finding people that support, can live the vision, can help execute in their functional areas of the business. And we need to then get out of the way and let them do their work and acknowledge the fact that we don't have all the answers. I remember William Marriott had these uh, great quote about the seven most important words in business, uh, which he said were, I don't know, what do you think? And as leaders, we tend to believe that we have the answers and our ego says, oh, yes, this is what's, what we should do. And you know what? Even if we do have the answer, what if we just are a little bit more patient, step back, let those ideas from, come from someone else? Chances are it's going to be the right idea. Then you can give them credit for it, make them feel good about it, and God, that's going to just do so much more for the culture, and you're going to really feel good that you impacted someone someone else's life that way. So some of the things that 
might seem counterintuitive about leadership are really what we're finding are being the most important methods of leadership going forward. And what you described before, Mark, might have been more of the traditional, more transactional leadership style, which says, here's what you, I want you to do, and then you go do it. As whereas today we're we're more transformational in our leadership styles to to say here's why you're being asked to do what you're doing and we're not going to tell you how to execute on it and you're letting that those ideas come from the passion of the people doing the work. Yeah, I mean, I think the best organizations today they're moving away from that old command and control style of leadership where they say you know. Uh, I'm the boss. I have the answers. I'm going to tell you what to do, and you better go do it. Um, moving, like you said, to a different style of leadership. So, um, one other thing I'd like to ask you is about um, connection to purpose and value, and I, I think that's a point um, that, that you and Britt make very strongly in the book. So, let's say um, you know, we have a tactical goal or a really important goal of improving patient outcomes and reducing infection rates. To to get there. Um, we want to increase adherence to hygiene policies. And can you talk a little bit about some of the success stories of improving in those areas and why it's so hard to connect, not just to talk about what we're doing, but to connect to purpose and values? Well, I think in each of these cases, whether it's, you know, hand washing or anything that we need to do, it's not just something that's a tactical strategy. Um, when we think about purpose, the fact is, most of the people in healthcare come with a heart for service to begin with. And so if we can tie them to that greater purpose, the fact that we're here to promote health, to heal, to make the world a better place, we're in, in just a such unique position of all industries to be able to do that. So it's, it's those cases where we, we tie each of those tasks to, to why. Um, you know, if we can reduce infection rates in the world, if we can do these kinds of things that such, have such high impact, then it's, it's not going to make those tasks look like just something I have to do because someone told me to do them. Um, and, and that's really the key to it all. And, and, and if we can go back to that, um, I think the industry would be so much better. And, and the fact is we haven't been taught to lead that way. We're, we're so focused on the fact that our organizations are running on thin margins and we got HCAP scores and readmission rates and all these things. But, you know, why are those things important to us? We, you know, we don't want to teach to the test. We don't want to just do something to get a better score. We want to do it because it's leading to better outcomes, to healthier people, to people that, don't can take better care of themselves and not end up in in the hospital and if we can stop and think about those things there's really great examples where that can be done and i think that you know i have found that that there's really three things that make people feel connected to their organization one is just that that purpose two is to be appreciated um, who doesn't want to feel valued in their work? And I don't care if you're the CEO or you're the janitor or the nurse. Everybody wants to feel validated in the work that they do every day, and we don't take the time enough to say thank you. Um, and the third is is learning. And I use this you know acronym PAL, Purpose, Appreciation, and Learning, is everybody wants to learn and grow. Um, and yet we don't seem to take enough time on a personal basis to sit with people and say, okay, we've been talking a lot about the vision of the organization and where we're trying to go and how you can help us get there, but what's your personal vision? 
What's your purpose and your core values? Where do you want to be in five or ten years? And as a leader, how am I helping you get there? And when you have that conversation with people on your team, you'd be shocked at what you'll hear about what they really want to do. As I was talking about this, this acronym PAL, the last one is really learning and the idea that, that everyone in the organization really wants to feel that there's a place for them to grow. And if we can understand each person's personal vision, where they want to be in five or ten years, it's a really interesting dialogue that you can have with your team. For example, one time I remember talking to my head of HR who turned out wanted to be a landscape architect someday, and I never knew that. And now that I had that knowledge, when we had our one-to-one meetings, I could talk to him about what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And um, was I worried that he was going to leave? Of course not. But I knew that I could uh, engage on another level, make him feel more engaged in the work, and knew that he was going to do even better work for us. So uh, we need to make sure that we're taking the time to sit down with our team members and really understand their personal visions and help them achieve those. And what we find is we go along in our careers that uh, while we all want to be successful, make more money, the real impact we can make is the impact we have on other people. Yeah, and I love that approach, what you're talking about. It sounds like uh, managing the whole or working with the whole person instead of viewing someone as, um, you know, I think old school organizations will, will view someone as a cog and machine. And, and instead, this realizes that we're all unique individuals with hopes and dreams and goals. And instead of just slashing or trimming budget um, to save money, maybe we can actually engage with people in a more meaningful way. Um, you know, like you said earlier, it's it's not just nice. It's not just the right thing to do. It's it's good business, and that's what your experience has proved out. Right? That's right. And the fact is that in our organizations, and healthcare organizations in particular, where many times there's hundreds and thousands of employees, there's so much hidden talent in the organization. And to just take a person with a good resume and put them in a seat and let them go and not try to take advantage of understanding what they're really capable of um, and and then optimizing that talent is really a big mistake. So sometimes as leaders, we're so focused on the goal and the strategy and realize that if we just spend the time developing our people, the rest of it will come. In, in maybe early stages of, of leaders in an organization trying to increase engagement, are, are there any mistakes that you see happening, maybe things that are well-intended but end up being um, clumsy or, or counterproductive? Are, are there any lessons learned like that, things that you could share? Sure. There's always going to be lessons learned like any strategy. And if you're engaging in this uh, you know, strategy around uh, culture or engaging of employees, that the biggest mistake that you can make is to make it a program or to make it an initiative because the naysayers are going to say that this is flavor of the month, that it's not going to stick, and when things uh, go go backwards or uh, sideways financially, they're going to stop doing all this. And, uh, and so you have to be able to deal with that by saying this is not a program or an initiative. This is who we are. And so what's key is consistency over time and to move in a very slow, methodical pace to implement these kinds of programs over time in ways that you won't take them away so that um, whether it's 
small ways of doing reward and recognition um, or doing a holiday dinner. You can't just take it away when we have a bad quarter. Um, if we were doing training and developing of our team members, but our financials get tough, we can't just stop that training. What we do as leaders is we, when we're trying to get lean, sometimes we're getting rid of the most important things instead of realizing that the very small things that don't necessarily cost a lot but make people feel good about themselves are going to make them work even harder for us in tougher times. So the biggest mistake we, we have is that we don't commit to these kinds of initiatives on a long-term basis. Well, that's uh, great advice and a uh, great reflection. I mean, one, one other thing I just wanted to delve into before we wrap up that that stood out to me, you know, former Toyota people I've worked with, in in particular, Pascal Dennis, who's written a number of great books. You know, my, my listeners uh, might know Pascal. He's been a guest here before. Um, when he talks about employee engagement and continuous improvement, people often think of Toyota as being a very serious company. And, and Pascal said, well, you no, know, there's actually a spirit of fun and playfulness that's very important in getting people um, involved in improvement, and that should be a, a really big part of it. So in the book, you talk about the importance of having fun. I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on that and why that's so important. Yeah, it's interesting because I, when I think about you know the Japanese way or Kaizen, I, I think more about accountability, and accountability is so critical to having a positive culture. Um, so I don't think there's anything that's negative about that. But in addition to being accountable, of course, we want to have fun in the workplace. And um, look, we spend a, a good part of our time at work. I think the lines between uh, work and home life are completely blurred. I don't really believe in work-life balance. I just think it's called life. We're all connected all the time. So the, the least we can do is to try to make the time that we spend with our colleagues an enjoyable time. Everybody likes to have fun, um, to be in a good mood. So um, what ways can we do that in our organization? And I think while the leader might think that they know, chances are the ideas that come from the front line are going to be different. Um, and, and we can do it in a hospital, too. We can have fun, and the patient doesn't have to be asleep when we do it. So um, I think it's really up to a leader to sit down with their team and say, you know, what do you like to do to have fun? How can we do this together? You know, in our call center, we had plenty of, you know, dress-up days and um, contests and little things that we would do to get people to get together. And you think about it, we've got a lot of people that are, you know, living on um, single moms, maybe living paycheck to paycheck. And the least we could do is show them some appreciation for what we do. We get the families involved in the things that we do as well. So um, there's, uh, again, many things that can be done without spending a lot of money. But having fun, getting involved in community service, um, doing things together, um, really go toward building that collaboration in the business. Well, one other thought, and uh, I guess this is my second vital thought. Can you talk, uh, Paul, a little bit more about your relationship with Brett Barrett? Uh, maybe I can get him as a guest here on the podcast and talk about um, Texas Health Presbyterian, and maybe some highlights of, of some of the great things they've done in, in terms of engaging their employees and improving things for patients, secondly. Sure. Well, I, I first met Britt in, I think, two thousand. 
1994, and we were both attending a Best Place to Work in Dallas event, and and I got to know him uh, as the CEO of a large company, a large hospital back then. It was it was uh, Medical City as part of HCA, and he had just tremendous results. But we we shared this this uh, real passion around employee engagement, and and we just became friends over the years and shared stories and competed about what we could do, and 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 he has just this transformational way of thinking around leadership that has done just incredible things for the organizations that he's led. And at Texas Health Presbyterian, for example, when he arrived there uh, almost four years ago, their employee engagement was in the 30th percentile, and now it's in the 93rd percentile. And they're achieving tremendous financial results. Um, And all by doing the kinds of small things that I've talked about and that we talk about in the book, um, with great stories about how you know he's implemented them in a hospital setting, um, but all by being that humble leader that um, that sits back and and engages people, makes people smile. I remember touring his hospital, and we'd get off the elevator, and and I'd see nurses just come up and give him a big hug. You know, well, how how often does that happen? You know, for a hospital CEO. And and he'll show up at you know three in the morning to deliver midnight munchies to the night staff and um, and make people just feel good about what they do every day. And, and um, one of the things we do at the end of the book is we have something called a culture IQ test or or CIQ that uh, leaders can take to to uh, really look at the culture of their organization and. Um, and we've been able to show across the country how we have a long way to go at improving these cultures. And you look at the lowest level of engagement, it's with our nurses. Well, some might not be surprised at that at all, but if we think about the people that are that are literally touching our patients the most every day are the least engaged level in our organizations. And we've got to fix that right away. So it takes leaders like Britt um, that are really one by one going to change our industry for the better. Well, with that, this is just um, a, a teaser for a follow-up conversation we can have um, with, with him, hopefully, at some point. But uh, Paul Spiegelman, along with Britt Barrett, authors of the book Patients Come Second, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. And as we wrap up, can you talk about the book's website or other ways that people can find you and um, follow up with you online? Sure. Uh, there is a website for the book, patientscomesecond.com. Encourage people to go on there and take a, the two-minute culture IQ test. We actually will provide results for an entire organization. There's no cost. We're just trying to help spread the word. I also have a personal website, paulspiegelman.com, and can uh, read about me and my other books all around culture and employee engagement. Okay, well, great. I hope people do that, and thank you for sharing some of your thoughts and experiences about what I found to be a very fascinating book, uh, Patients Come Second. So thanks for taking time today, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.